Hey guys, it's good to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay, and uh, I'm on the team here. Really glad you're here. Um, and here we are, full room. I know we've got people in the theater and uh, watching online. Really glad you're joining us. Um, I'm, I'm seriously, uh, uniquely grateful you're here today because we're going to begin um, a journey for the next four or five weeks together that my prayer leading up to today has been that the journey we take uh, in the next month or so um, is formative for us for many years to come. I think some of the ideas that we want to explore and maybe more importantly some of the practices that we want to embody and lean into together as a church family, I'm really, really hopeful that God would use uh, this series as a sort of catalyst and a launching pad for many years to come as he shapes us uh, into his people. Um, before I get into the teaching, I was um, not here last Sunday. I was out of town, so I didn't have a chance to directly address um, what is unfolding on the other side of our planet. And um, just in my role here, I thought it would be important to do. Uh, you know, I think many of us are at a loss as we see what is unfolding in the war between Israel and Hamas. Um, almost 6,000 people have been killed in recent weeks. Uh, a majority of them have been women, children, and the elderly. Um, this is nearly twice as many deaths as 9-11. And I just, I want to admit something and then point us to something. First, I want to admit to you that geopolitics is really complicated. At the same time, I think that God's vision for human flourishing is abundantly clear. So geopolitics is complicated, but God's vision for the world is abundantly clear. And one of the things that is clear to me, my best understanding of scripture, is that the violent taking of life is opposed to the way of Jesus, which is the way of love. And so as a church, we wanna lament and grieve with the God who laments and grieves and draws near the brokenhearted. We wanna lament and grieve with both Israeli and Palestinian mothers and fathers and sons and daughters who are grieving the loss of sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and grandparents and friends and neighbors and teachers. We wanna stand on the hope of Christ who according to Ephesians 2 came and proclaimed peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we all have access to the Father by one spirit. I've been thinking a lot about Jesus' um, moment on the cross, his darkest moment, literally on the brink of death. And some of you know the story, on the cross as he is breathing his final breaths, Jesus quotes a psalm, he quotes Psalm 22, which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Some of us have direct connections to friends, maybe even family who have been affected directly by what is happening in this war. And maybe you have cried these words, my God, my God, why are you so far? Now I told you Jesus is quoting a psalm here, and there are about 30 verses in this psalm. Now maybe Jesus doesn't complete the psalm because he runs out of breath or he's too sapped of energy, but at the time, every good Jew would have known, every good Jew that had the psalms memorized 
would have known that this psalm actually doesn't end in despair and abandonment. And neither does our story. This psalm at the end reminds us in verses 27 to 31, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, before God. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over all nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He has brought peace. Would you pray with me? God, we stand today on the truth of your word that even when the human story unfolds in such a way that we find ourselves crying out in anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? We stand on your word that tells us that that's not the end of the story, that all dominion belongs to you, that you rule over all the nations and all of our lives. And so God, we pray that you would vanquish the schemes of evildoers today, that you would bring peace and healing and restoration, that you would draw near to brokenhearted mothers and fathers and sons and daughters, and that the we live an entire world away, that in the compassion fatigue that so many of us feel, you would rekindle in us a passion and a fire and a longing for your peace and for your justice to rule and to reign across our broken planet so that earth might look a little more like heaven and a little less like hell every single day. Thank you, God. We trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for taking a moment. <clears throat> um, let's begin here. I have this really vivid memory from middle school, and I don't know why it is so vivid, but it is very vivid. I was 12 or 13, and I was at the mall with a couple of friends of mine looking for pretty girls, because that's what you do when you're 13. You go to the mall with your buddies, and you look for pretty girls, and then you find them, and then you run away because you're too nervous and scared. <laughs> so that's what I did with my time. And we were at the mall, and um, we saw a vending machine, and there was a bag of Funyuns in the vending machine. And I loved Funyuns, which is probably why I never dated pretty girls. <laughs> but I saw the bag of Funyuns, and I thought to myself, let's go. It's Funyun time, you know? So I put in my three quarters or whatever, I press B6, and then that thing that we all fear happens. <laughs> the little coil thing starts ungoing, and then it stops just shy. And there it is, that my, my, I paid my bag of Funyuns dangling, teasing me. I know you want me, but you can't have me, you know? Just like all the pretty girls. It was like just totally, you know, mocking me. So I'm sitting there. My friends are laughing at me. So I start shaking the vending machine, which you should not do, by the way. I, I read a statistic once that like 
There, in America, there's an average of seven vending machine deaths a year or something like that of people shaking vending. Serious, so don't shake vending machines. So I start shaking the vending machine and it's not, it's not falling. So my friends are laughing at me, we're having a good time, but at a certain point they realize something is changing in me. This is not, like I'm not having a good time. This is injustice, you know? So at a certain point, my friends, Brian and Ray, they look at me and they're like, dude, who cares, man, let's go. Like, we didn't come here to watch you shake a vending machine. And something snapped in me. Like, really, truly, I was like, this is wrong. I paid and I deserve that bag of Funyuns. This is wrong. So eventually, my friends left and I didn't care. Like, I'm getting my bag of vending machines. The transaction is what matters most. This is really interesting. I had gone to the mall that day because I had these really wonderful relationships, these friends that I loved spending time with. But for some reason in that moment, the transaction outweighed the relationship. Like something snapped at me and I started thinking the most important thing right now is for me to complete this transaction, to get what is rightly owed, what I deserve, at the expense of relationship. I mean, I don't know how long I was at that vending machine, but I certainly lost like a lot of time because my friends left. They're like, we're not gonna stand here and watch you try to get a bag of Funyuns. We're gonna go hang out and do our thing. And I eventually found them later, but that was a part of my afternoon where the transaction superseded the relationship. I've been thinking about that this past week because um, sadly, I realize that often in my life with God, I am seeking the bag of funds at the expense of the relationship. In other words, a simple way to put it, often in my life, and I, I think often in our lives, if we're really honest with ourselves, we want what God can do. But God wants us. God longs for relationship. That is his primary motivation. But often... I say I want relationship, but the reality of my life is that really what I want is transaction. I want a relationship that can benefit me, which brings into question, do I actually want God the way he wants me? Or do I just want what God can do? Again, for the next several weeks, you and I are going to explore this um, series that we're calling the With God Life Everywhere at All Times. What does it look like to live your life with God everywhere at all times? There's um, a 17th century monk named Brother Lawrence. Many of you know him because he famously, he didn't actually write, but his teachings, his thoughts, his ideas were compiled in a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And some of you know Brother Lawrence's story. He was not some highly educated intellectual theologian. He um, was considered intellectually dull most of his life. He was handicapped in the 30 years war. He was, for most of his adult life, he um, was lame. And he lived in this monastery in France for decades and decades until his death. And he was not up in front teaching the people, the masses. He wasn't writing incredible works of theology. He was a dishwasher and a cook. 
And later in his life, when his body really broke down and he couldn't cook and clean and wash dishes anymore, he spent the remainder of his life fixing the sandals of the priests in the monastery. But we remember none of the names of the priests in that monastery. We remember the name Brother Lawrence. Why? Because Brother Lawrence, every day, as he cooked and cleaned and washed dishes and fixed sandals, he exuded a sort of life in the presence of God that began drawing the masses. People began visiting this monastery not to listen to the priests teach the word, but to watch Brother Lawrence clean dishes in the presence of God. And Brother Lawrence once said this, I cannot imagine living satisfied without the practice of the presence of God. While I am with him, I fear nothing. We need only to recognize God intimately present with us to address ourselves to him in every moment. The presence of God, a fearless life with God, a constant, unwavering awareness of his presence in us and with us and for us. It reminds me of the psalmist's words in uh, in Psalm 23, right? The famous words. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It is about the presence of God And only the presence of God when it comes to navigating the valleys and the mountaintops and the long plateaus of life. This sort of life isn't just possible. It's the sort of life God actually wants with us. John chapter 1, the opening of John's gospel, what does John say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Who is this Word? Not rhetorical. Anyone know? Jesus. This Word is Jesus. Jesus was there in the beginning. This phrase, in the beginning, to the original Jewish audience, would have immediately been big, bright, red, blinking lights. What is John talking about here? He's talking about literally in the beginning. Genesis chapter one, verse one. The opening lines of the Bible, which tells us the beginnings of the human story. What does it say? In the beginning, God, this is Yahweh, God the Father. God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and then what happens? And God said, he spoke a word. So I'll show you this next image. What is John talking about here? In the beginning, at the beginning of time, the beginning of the human story, God the Father speaks the word, which is Jesus, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, hovers. Do you see this here? In Christian theology, this is known as the Trinity, three in one. It is one of the grand mysteries of Christian uh, belief. We believe there is one true God over all things, the first mover, the creator of all things. But we believe that this one true God exists as three in one. 
this Trinitarian reality. In other words, that the one true God of the universe is a perpetual relationship. There is one God, but that one God is God the Father, Jesus the Word who is the Son, and the Holy Spirit who lives and resides and empowers and animates every follower of Jesus today. So God is relationship from the very get-go. Here's what's really interesting. We take this for granted, especially if you've been in church for a while. It's like, oh, three in one, Trinity, yeah, I get it, it's awesome. Doesn't really make mathematical sense. We take this for granted. When you look at um, religious history, and you look in particular at all of the various gods of the various ancient religions, what you realize about them is that they are all singular. What I don't mean is there was only like one, there were only one or two other gods amongst the pagan religions in the ancient world. There were many, hundreds, thousands, really. What I mean is every single one of them were singular. They existed only for themselves, for their own pleasures. And so if you look at any story of any ancient god, of any ancient mythology, you will see that every single one of them, for them, relationships for these gods were purely transactional. They're just trying to get their bag of Funyuns. <laughs> Relationships for these gods were only for the intent and purpose of furthering their own self-interest. But what you find in the Bible is that the one true God of the universe is a relationship. That this one true God, three in one, exists for self, but existing for self means existing for another. Um, the theologian Michael Reeves in a fantastic book about the Trinity called Delighting in the Trinity. If anyone's ever interested in that, I would highly recommend. It's kind of a long quote, but it's really helpful. He says this, single person gods having spent eternity alone are inevitably self-centered beings. And so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything else to exist. Wouldn't the existence of a universe be an irritating distraction for the God whose greatest pleasure is looking in a mirror? Everything changes when it comes to, God, to the Father, Son, and Spirit. Here is a God who is not essentially lonely, but who has been loving for all eternity as the Father has loved the Son and the Son in the Spirit. Loving others is not a strange or novel thing for this God at all. It is at the root of who he is. Loving others is at the root of who our God is. His nature is relationship. God is perpetual, ongoing, loving relationship. The fact that God is a trinity, three in one, means that he lives in ongoing withness. He is constantly with others. And it's out of this relational longing that this God makes us. Verse 26 of Genesis 1, then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. This doesn't mean that we look like God. It doesn't mean that God is a middle-aged, slightly overweight Asian-American man. Thank God he's not that. It means that we embody his nature, which is relational. It's why every, every secular study ever done, ever, has revealed to us that the healthiest people on the planet 
are the ones who have the most relational strength with others. But it also means that we are made not just for relationship with one another, but that we are made with rela- for relationship with God. But this is hard. It's hard because of many things, but primarily, first, it is hard because of what happens in chapter three of the human story. Those of you who are familiar with the Genesis story, you know that chapters one and two are awesome. This relational God creates human beings in his likeness for relationship out of love. And everything is great. And then in chapter three, everything goes wrong. The human beings, tempted by the great enemy of God, represented as a serpent in the story, they rebel against God. They do that which God instructed them not to do. In Christian theology, this is a nasty three-letter word called sin, which means rebellion against God and his plan for his glory and for the flourishing of the world. But you remember what happens after the first man and woman, they sin against God. In their shame, what do they do? They run and hide. But then what does God do? Genesis 3. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Let me just pause there. God walks in the garden and he feels the temperature. God's original design, his intention, was to be with us in a literal way to walk the same ground we walked, to feel the same temperature we feel. That's what's happening here. God is literally with people at this point in the story. And then they, the man and the woman who had sinned, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then what does the Lord God say to the man? Where are you? Where are you? Does this mean that God who knows all things, literally doesn't know where the man is? Is is this like a, a divine game of hide and seek where the God of the universe who is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, is this God literally wondering like, oh gee, where did they go? Hey, where are you? You know, like, is that what's happening? No. God knew their physical location. He realizes there has been a separation. You know, what's really interesting to me. God could have said any number of things here. Like, God could have said, what have you done? God could have said, why didn't you listen? God could have said, oh, you dumb human. Did I not tell you? The man and the woman hide in shame because they know they've done wrong, but God does not respond by piling on the shame, does he? What does he do? He seeks them. Where are you? You do not ask the question, where are you, unless you want to be with the person you are seeking. When I play hide and seek at my house with my kids, my daughter, she's eight, so she understands the premise of the game. But my five-year-old son, he will count. One, two, three, four, ready or not, here I come, and I'm hiding. He will search for like maybe 10 seconds. And then if he can't find me, you know what Simon will say? Appa, which means dad in Korean, he'll say, Appa, where are you? 
And then I'll have to walk out and tell him, that's not how the game works, dude. You're supposed to keep looking. But there, as a five-year-old, there's something in him that's like, I don't know where he is. I need to be with him. Where are you? And so like our games are really lame. Our hide-and-seek games are really lame. Because I always just have to walk out. I was like, here I am. I guess, like, why, why are we playing? What is this? You don't understand how the game works. It's because my son wants to be with me. God asks, where are you? Because he wants to be with them. He understands there's a separation. Sin, human sin has created the separation, and where are you is the question that has echoed throughout human history. In your busyness, in the mad rush to succeed, in the next thing you need to accomplish on your task list, God is gently asking, where are you? Because he wants you. He doesn't primarily want the things you will accomplish or the ways in which you will succeed or how you will make a name for yourself. He wants you. That's really hard for us to believe sometimes for a number of reasons, because you and I, we hide in shame as well. And it's hard to hear from God, where are you? Because sometimes we don't want to be found. But listen, when sin entered the story, when Adam and Eve failed, when they literally ruined the rest of human history, God did not say, shame on you. How dare you? Why didn't you listen? What have you done? That's not the first thing God says. The first thing he says is, where are you? This is not the end of our story. I still want you if you want me. We see where this story is headed. Some of you are familiar with the Bible. The very end of the Bible is a book called Revelation. And it, the writer John, who we read from earlier, he, he sees a vision of where the human story is headed at the end of time. We're not there yet today. We're waiting for that day. But what's the vision John sees? John, Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place, that word dwelling is a form of the Greek word for home. God has made his home now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is where the story's headed. Whether you want it or not, God will be with us. And you have a choice whether you wanna be with him. Dallas Willard says, God seeks us. The basic nature of God is one of loving community. This ancient prophetic text called Jeremiah, what does God himself say? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Now let's be honest, for many of us, we have grown so accustomed to a sort of long distance relationship with God that this whole concept of being near to God, being with God feels a little awkward. Um, 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, I asked Jenny out on a date. She I had asked her multiple times. She finally said yes, and we had our first date at Blue Rock Shoot, the coffee shop in downtown Saratoga. And um, I was like all amped up, ready to go. I was like, this is it. 
I'm going to seal the deal. I might even propose. Who knows, right? <laughs> we go on this date, and it did not unfold the way I had imagined. We sit down, and immediately it's awkward, you know, like we didn't know how to converse. And I don't remember how long it was, probably 30 minutes into the conversation, like mid-sentence, I think I was like saying something. She's like, hey, you know what? I think I'm gonna go. <laughs> and she got up and she like walked to her car. And I didn't know what to do. So I, like a creeper, I followed her. She didn't ask me to follow her. I was just, okay, I gotta go too, I guess. I don't know. And I followed her and then she left. And um, it's because I am not an awesome guy. <laughs> I was like, it's a miracle that I'm married, that she eventually, you know, said yes to me. But anyways, that date ended so awkwardly. It's gone very well since then. We're married. We got two kids. Um, praise the Lord. Uh, but I had a choice to make in that moment. And I really contemplated both of these choices. The choice I had to make was between two options. I could either lean into the awkwardness and like, okay, it's okay. First dates are often awkward. I could lean into it or I could choose apathy, right, to protect myself. It's like, eh, you know what? She's not that awesome. I don't care. Who cares? Other fish in the sea. I'll be fine. You know what? It's fine. Doesn't bother me. Nope. I don't care. I don't care, right? And that's, that's a very typical response these days to lots of things. It's like I grew up on Nirvana, you know, and Nirvana, like the whole thing was like, let's not care. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't get, right? It's like, I could have chosen apathy because it's too awkward to continue pursuing the relationship because relationships are often awkward when they start. And if you have lived a long period of time of your life apart from God in a long distance relationship to God, I guarantee you your first several moments of leaning into his presence in your life, it is very likely it will be awkward and you will have a choice to make. It's like, ah, tried, not great, I'm good. You could choose that. Or you could lean into the awkwardness. Here's the thing, many of us choose apathy because again, it's, it's way safer, it's easier, it's more convenient. But the human soul craves meaning. And anything meaningful is always hard. Nothing meaningful is ever easy. If it's easy, it's not that meaningful. And so even though we crave meaning, the reality is when we choose apathy, it saps us of meaning and we grow impassioned for meaningless things. There's a fantastic book uh, written last year by Uche Anazor. It's called Overcoming Apathy. I would highly recommend. He says this. We are captivated by the things we don't really care about and are lukewarm to the things that in our heart of hearts mean the most to us. We don't act on what we should act on, but we are awakened to the things we should probably ignore. I just want you to consider, as an example, your digital diet. Think about how amped up you are prone to getting when you doom scroll your feed. Think about the fire in your belly you feel. Maybe it's anger, maybe it's whatever, whatever it is. And compare that to how you feel in your life with God. In those quiet moments when it's just you and the Lord. There's an imbalance there for most of us. There is for me. So the question, what can we do? 
We can live at the pace of peace with focused attention. That's the path forward. Let me show you this next image. Especially here where you and I live, the place we call home, most of life for most people here is lived at the pace, at the frenetic pace of speed in an age of distraction. Like so many of us in this room right now, you're listening at 40%, because 60% of you is already thinking like, okay, after lunch, we go to this thing, and then at 2.30, I've got this, and then tonight, we gotta do this, and then at seven, I gotta get back on email and prep for the, right? Like, we're j it's just frenetic, and that's not necessarily bad. I'm just saying we have, we've become conditioned to living at this pace. But a life with God is lived at the steady pace of peace with patient attention. Frederick Faber says this, that in the spiritual life, God chooses to try our patience, first of all, by his slowness. He is slow, we are swift. I love this here. It is because we are but for a time, but he has been for eternity. Thus, grace, for the most part, acts slowly. He works little by little. Let me explain this in layman's terms. I think to myself, I'm 44. You know what I think to myself sometimes? I've got 15 to 20 good working years left. If I cannot change the world and disrupt the industry, it's like Silicon Valley talk, in the next decade and a half, what, what is even the purpose of life, right? God has been for an eternity, literally before humans came to be. And he will continue to be way, way after your 15 to 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 years of work. He will continue to be way, way after your 70, 80, 90 years of life on this planet. That number of years is such a tiny speck, a little blip on the long, ongoing story that is the human story unfolding with God as the author. And yes, he is interested in your little blip. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. But do not make the mistake of believing that your 80 years of a story is the whole story. M. Scott Peck talks about attention, and he says that the principal form that the work of love takes is attention. When we love another, we give him or her our attention. We make the effort to set aside our existing preoccupations and actively shift our consciousness. Attention is an act of will. In John chapter 14, Jesus promises us peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. In Matthew he invites us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So a few diagnostic questions for us as we consider living life with God at the pace of peace with patient attention. A few questions. Um, and you can take a photo of this on your phone, or you can just email us, and we'll send you all my slides. A few questions to ask yourselves this week. Is the speed of my life coming at a relational cost? 
Am I moving at the speed of peace, or am I consistently hurried, anxious, feeling behind? How much of my attention does God really have? And when my thoughts wander, to whom or to what do they most often go? Begin asking yourselves, see, Siri can't understand my questions. <laughs> Only humans with Imago Dei can. So if you want to be human and not a machine, ask yourself these questions. I'm going to invite Chris and the team to come back up. And before we sing, we're going to practice something together. Brother Lawrence also once said this. He said, let us occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. The more we know him, the more we will desire to know him. We will learn to love him equally in times of distress or in times of great joy. This is one of the reasons why um, this year we are gathering as a church every single month to pray. So if you've not joined us for one of our worship and prayer nights, it happens every single month. I think our next one is the first Monday of November. We'll actually have a time there. We began today just um, praying uh, and surrendering um, and just looking to God for the conflict um, in Gaza. We'll have uh, an opportunity at the November prayer night in just a week and a half or so to have some space to continue doing that, grieving and lamenting and seeking God's um, healing. Um, we'll have space to do all sorts of other things as well. So I would invite you, come, join us for our worship and prayer nights every month. The other thing I'm gonna invite all of us to, and we're gonna practice it here together in this room, is this ancient Ignatian practice called the daily examine. And don't be thrown off by like Ignatian and what does that mean? Are we, like, it's just, it's the simplest way I know to invite as many of us as possible to spend time with the Lord every single day. The daily examine is exactly what it sounds like. It's an opportunity to examine your day with God every day. So here's how it works. There are five movements in the daily examine, and you can do this in three minutes every day. Or you can take 30 minutes or an hour, whatever works for you, whatever your day allows. But this is doable every day. We're gonna do this together in a moment. But it's five movement, movements where typically at the end of your day, you would set aside a little bit of time to be with the Lord. If you're married, maybe it's with your spouse. If you've got kids, you can do this with your kids. In fact, our kids and student ministries teams and the weekly emails, they will send out a kids and students specific sort of um, uh, prompts for the daily examine. But the first movement is to invite God to make you aware of his loving presence here and now and then to give thanks, to reflect on the emotions of your day, and then to confess anything you need to confess, and then to look forward for the day ahead. So we're gonna do this together now. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I just want you to sense um, how doable this is. Um, and let me give you, in fact, let's practice this together, and then I'll give you a, a practical sort of next step. So I'm gonna invite you to just close your eyes, every person in the room, whether you participate with me or not is your choice, but I would invite everyone in the room, close your eyes and begin taking a few deep breaths 
through your nose, out your mouth. Just a few deep breaths. And continue to breathe deeply. Just continue to breathe deeply. Try to clear your mind, and I want you to invite God now to make you aware of his loving presence here and now. Imagine every breath as his presence that is with you and in you. Now take a moment and think back on the last 24 hours of your day and just think about one positive experience and thank God for it. Could be a simple little thing or something big one positive experience and thank God for for it specifically. Now consider the last 24 hours of your life and reflect on the various emotions you felt in the last 24 hours. And in particular, I want you to think about a painful emotion if you had one and visualize surrendering that emotion to God now. Now, take a moment and consider one thing that you may need to confess to God, a specific thing the last 24 hours of your day, a way in which you sinned against God or sinned against another person and confess it to God now. Finally, think about the next 24 hours of your life Is there one area in which you need God to be with you? Ask him to be with you in that specific thing. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who is with us and for us. Amen. Simple, right? A breath of fresh air every day. So here's the invitation. Again, if you've got kids um, or students, teenagers, you'll get an email from our team with some prompts where you could do this together with your family. It doesn't have to be long. Just go around and have your kids share one thing and pray together and invite God to be with you. For all of us, here's my invitation. I'll show you this next slide, and I would like for you to take out your phone right now. Um, these little smartphones in our back pockets are the devices that distract us most. So here is my invitation. No one can make you do anything. But if you scan that QR code, our team has created a variety of phone backgrounds that will give you the daily examine prompts. And I would invite you, make it your phone background for at least a few weeks. Until, and you won't need more than a few weeks. These prompts will just, they'll, they'll embed in you. You won't need visual reminders. You'll remember them easily. But you can pick one, make it your phone background, and I would invite you every day 
if you can at the end of your day, but if you can't, at some point, someplace in your day, take three minutes or five or 10 and be with God, be with God. Um, I'll close with this. It's an embarrassing story. Um, I play fantasy football. I don't know why I do. It's miserable. But a few weeks ago, on a Saturday, you know, the day before the big day, Sunday, I'm standing out in our front yard, and my son was riding his bike, and um, I didn't really realize he had stopped riding his bike, and he had grabbed a football. He grabbed a football, a small little Nerf football that we have at our house, and he was like, he was right in front of me asking me to throw the football with him, and I was too distracted checking my fantasy football team. And I, once I heard his voice, I snapped out of it, and I just, I laughed. I was like, how, how, like, how apropos? Like, this is my life with God. I'm checking my fantasy football team and failing to spend time throwing an actual football with my actual son. We are so distracted. We are so hectic. We are so frenzied sometimes with good intentions, trying to do things for God, that we fail to hear his invitation to be with God. So for the next year, I'm gonna, I'm, and I'm gonna like remind us of this pretty consistently, I would at minimum love for us to practice the daily examine together, to begin habituating the rhythms of our lives to be lives that are spent not just for God, but with God. Amen? Let's stand and sing together.